But as we turn our hearts to uh, God's Word uh, this morning, Romans chapter 8, I I just want to read for us um, verses 5, or verses 4 through 11, and um, verses 4 through 11 of Romans chapter 8. Actually, start in verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of life because of righteousness, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I want to start a little mini-series here in Romans 8. We're talking about living the fulfilled spirit life, the spirit-filled life. And uh, last couple, three weeks, we last three messages in Romans, I should say, we've been looking at no condemnation in Christ. How there's no condemnation for us in Christ. Those who have been saved by the blood of Christ are saved to the uttermost. There's nothing that can happen. There's nothing that anybody can do. There's nothing that can cancel that transaction. But Paul makes a shift here, and he begins to question what we desire. And so I want to look at, for the next couple weeks, what is your mind set on? What is your mind set on? What do you desire? In Romans chapter 8, verse 5, we read there, For those who live according to the flesh, look at what it says, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The Bible has a lot to say about setting our minds on certain things. And we're going to be looking at that in the coming weeks. So today's kind of like an introductory uh, to this part of Scripture, introduction to it. Um, That word, setting the mind, it's translated and it means to set their minds. It it means to have a a bent towards something, Um, something that occupies your heart's desires. To desire something. That's what that means. It's referring to what occupies a person's mind. It can also refer to obsessions that we may have. We all have them. In other words, your life will never become obsessed with whatever your mind has not first become set on. 
when I was over with the grandkids, they liked to play games on the iPad. So we had one little game that we started playing. And I started playing this thing. I couldn't put it down. I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. You know, became obsessed with it. And uh, you know, I had to beat my grandson. You know, I had to do that. So, you know, I was concentrating on that. Uh, I don't know if I accomplished that or not. But, you know, your mind is so easily obsessed with things. And your mind set, or your, what your, your mind thinks about, what is in your mind, it's very important. The Bible speaks a lot about our minds, about our hearts. But your mindset really will determine how you act. It will motivate you in what you do, in what you say, in what you feel. It even determines who you will allow to influence your life. It decides what you will choose as a source of knowledge. It affects your view of every experience that you ever have. It shapes your value system. It dominates your private and public life. What you set your mind on is very, very important. And God knew that. And so he gives great emphasis here in our text. And he keeps on, Paul keeps on reiterating, what is your mind set on? What is your mind set on? The more you love something, the more you will become like it. Have you ever heard that? The more you love something, the more you will become like it. You know, when we were over in Hawaii, we saw a lot of people who were into surfing. And you know what? It didn't surprise me. They look like surfers. (laughs) They dress like a surfer. They talk like, hey, dude, they talk like a surfer. You know, they had the bleach hair. They they had the whole thing. Why? Because they love surfing. I've talked to people that love tennis. And they're all about tennis. You know, they wear the little sweaty things around their ankles and their wrists and everything. And boy, they're just all about tennis. You know, you talk to somebody who's into rock climbing, you know, and they got the, the backpack and they got the whole thing, you know, and they're, they're lean, mean, and they get out there on the rock and they just, you know, they just live that. Or some of you may be into hunting or fishing. All you have to do is look at the car, you drive a truck. Pennsylvania, it's real easy. The guy with a, got a gun in the back of the rack and a pole. And I mean, it's real simple. Out here, it's not, not probably legal to do that, so you don't see that as often. But you can tell by the way people dress, by the way people act, what they enjoy, what they are obsessed with. I don't mean that in a bad way. We all have desires. We all have likes and dislikes. I want to ask you this morning, what are you devoted to? Upon what things have you set your mind? In other words, what are your obsessions? (laughs) I read a little story this past week when I was studying about John Audubon. I don't know if you ever heard of John Audubon, but he was born in the late 1700s. And at a very early age, John Audubon revealed his love for two things, art and birds. Get it? Audubon Society, you know? Pretty famous guy. Um, He would rise, the story tells us, At midnight, night after night, and he would go into the swamps to study certain night hawks. 
One summer, he repeatedly visited the bayou near New Orleans to observe a shy water bird. He would stand almost up to his neck in stagnant waters, scarcely breathing while poisonous water moccasins swam past his face. It was a life-threatening work, but he was reported to have said with great joy, what of it? I now have the pictures of the birds. He was obsessed with birds. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, we have a lot of information today because of John Audubon. And it's a wonderful thing to study the handiwork of God. But because of that desire, John Audubon was devoted to studying birds. I mean, he risked his life. He suffered every discomfort without any regret. I mean, just the idea of being in a swamp up to your neck in stagnant waters, you know, forget about the snakes. Just the idea of the stagnant water is enough to gross me out. What did he do? He did all that just to study what he loved. I know of people who are passionate about far less important things. It never really ceases to amaze me what people are passionate about when you stop and think about it. What people are devoted to doing. The truth is this. What you love, you think about. And what you think about, you do. Because what you think about, you are. That's a very important truth. What you love, you end up thinking about. And what you think about, you end up doing. Because what you think about is what you are. In other words, you are what you have been becoming. (laughs) Solomon put it this way, Proverbs 23, 7. He said, for as a man, what? Thinks in his heart, so he is. Or Psalm 73, verses 25 to 26 says this. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He's speaking to God. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Some of you ought to write a song. With that. Oh, we already got one. That's right. That's a good, a good song. Psalm 73. Or Romans, just a couple pages to the right in your Bible. Romans 10, verse 1. Paul writes, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He had his heart set upon the soul's of people that needed to be saved. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 9, where Paul writes, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim, same word, desire, we make it our desire to please Him. There's a lot of things that we can be consumed with. There's a lot of things that we can put our desire upon. And there's a lot of good things that we can put our desire upon. But let us not forget what God has done in our lives. Let us not forget where we've been in Romans. Because we began in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. 
I was listening to Danny's message, and one of the things he said was a problem with a lot of Christians today is they don't know who they are in Christ. They don't know their identity in Christ. That's so true. Christian after Christian I talk to who's dealing with major things in their life, and whether it's depression or whether it's financial, whatever, they forget who they are in Christ. The problem becomes bigger than their God. And we have to be reminded continually that in Christ there's now no condemnation. And just that fact alone should give us a little obsession for God, should give us a little obsession for His Word, should give us a little obsession, a desire to fellowship with God's people. When we stop and we realize what God has done for us. You know, there's a lot more to be said about that, but... There's not only no condemnation in Christ, but I just want to review quickly, and I'm not even going to read the verses. I'm just, they're going to be up on the screen here. But what happens to those of us who are in Christ? I got two pages here of stuff. Well, one page. About three slides. Jesus says, first of all, they're redeemed. Secondly, they're alive to God. They're possessors of eternal life. They're free from the law of sin and death. They're members of one spiritual body. They're sharers in Christ's work. They're sanctified. They're recipients of grace. They're secure in death. They're bold to speak the truth. They're new creatures. They're free. They're justified. They're recipients of the blessings given to Abraham. They're sons of God. They're one with others regardless of race, gender, or social condition. The recipient of every spiritual blessing in heaven. They're seated in the heavens. They're created for good works. They're brought near to God. They're partakers with Jews of the promises. They're forgiven by God. They're encouraged. They're at peace. They're provided for. Anticipating the resurrected body. They're overseen by providence. They're alive. And 2 Timothy lastly says 2.10 that we're saved. All those things happen to those who are in Christ. But it's interesting in verse 4, at the end of verse 4 where we left off last time, it says, but according to the Spirit. All these things happen because of God's work in our life. These aren't things that we conjure up. These aren't things that we can manufacture. Our study in Romans has brought us to these chapters that we come to today. But I want us to go back to the Gospel of John. Because I think that we need to have a proper perspective of what's going on here. Look at John chapter 8. And this little story that we're going to read here speaks to the very fact of not being condemned in Christ. And it speaks to a lot of things, and we'll, we'll tell you what that is in a second. But in, in John chapter 8, look at verse um, Well, let's just look, start at verse 1. They went to each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again 
to the temple, all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? Kind of a disgusting situation, if you understand what culturally is going on here. The law required that there be two or three or even more witnesses to a crime. That was very clear. In other words, you had to actually witness it. And if this requirement had been met, as the leaders seem to have been claiming, the witnesses would also have had to see the man who was involved. <laughs> that they did not bring the man before Jesus suggests that this, uh, he may have been part of this plot and, and he may have just been part of this thing to try to trick Jesus. It's a trap. In other words, these leaders really didn't care what the law said. They didn't really care about the woman. They were only intent on trying to trap Jesus because they hated him, because he stood for truth. And you know what? It was kind of clever the way they went about it because Jesus was known for being compassionate. We know that. And so he would be expected to forgive the woman. But if he did that publicly, Jesus would be accused of throwing God's law aside. And what kind of prophet would do that? So they were trying to discredit him as a teacher being sent by God. On the other hand, if he condemned the woman, the leaders would laugh at him and scorn and and mock his words when he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Oh no, I'll kill you. See, they they were kind of looking to trap him. They thought they had him in a box, as they thought many times before. (laughs) You know the story. Jesus fulfilled the law by demanding that all its requirements be met. Let those who witnessed the sin come forward and cast the first stones. That's what he said as the law required. But let them be sure that they weren't guilty themselves, which they would be, even of this crime, if they had been part of the plot to trap the woman. So when the the accusers failed to come forward, Jesus exercised the right to judge her, not on the basis of the law, which she clearly broke, but on the basis of, of his coming death for sinners. And that's exactly what he says. We know how the story ends. He asks the woman, where are the accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no, nobody's here, after she looks up. And he answered, verses 10, 11, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? No one has condemned you. She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I, what? Condemn you. And from now on, what? Sin no more. 
No condemnation for those that are in Christ. I tell you that story because it's an exact representation of what we studied in the first four verses of Romans. We have this great news of freedom from condemnation in Christ. And we've studied all that. And you can get the tapes, listen to that. It means that God has saved and is saving a great company of people by the work of Jesus Christ. We have the law, but like the the woman in John's gospel here, we are unable to keep it. So we're condemned by it. We cannot be set free from the law's condemnation by law because the law is powerless to do so. We've studied that. But the Bible says what the law could not do, God did by sending his son to be an offering for our sin. See, Jesus is saying to us, neither do I condemn you, go in peace. But as we come to verses 3 and 4, we discover that it's not merely a question of our being delivered from law's condemnation. Christ has delivered us from the law's condemnation. And he's delivered us from the law's power. When he died, he started the process of sanctification. The process of making us more like Christ. And not merely to provide a satisfaction for the wrath of God. But he also, it says, and he And so he condemned sin in sinful men in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. In Romans 8, this is what God, through the Apostle Paul, is sharing with us. That in Christ there is no condemnation. In other words, you are free from all the condemnation. But what did he also say? Now leave your life of sin. There has to be a change. See, what this is teaching us is very clear, that justification and sanctification always go together. You can't have one without the other. You can't become more like Christ if God hasn't justified you. And if you're not justified you're not going to live in a sanctified manner. Don't ever think that justification is sanctification. It is not. Justification is merely God declaring you righteous, even though you're not. Sanctification is the process of God making us more holy, more separated onto Him. See, we're not saved because of any good that we do, right? We know that. It's not of works. If that were the case, Jesus would have told the woman, leave your life of sin, and if you do that, then I won't condemn you. But he didn't do that, did he? He said right out of the box, you know what? I don't condemn you either. Now go and what? Sin no more. No condemnation leads to a holy life. Just because justification is not sanctification and sanctification is not justification 
We are not to think that sanctification is somehow unimportant. And this has kind of crept into the church, that somehow you can get saved, and then you do whatever you want. You live however you want. That's why the church of Christ is in such disarray today. According to Romans 8, sanctification is the very end for which God saved us. By sending his son to be an offering for our sin, the Bible says God condemns sin and sinful men in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. There's four important truths here that I want to share with you this morning concerning holiness. We don't hear much about holiness anymore. First of all, holiness is justification's goal. God declares you righteous so that you would be holy. We could also say since Jesus died to save us from and not merely in our sins, that the purpose of Jesus' incarnation and death was that all who are saved by him might live holy lives. When God sent his son in the likeness of sinful man, the Bible says, which refers to his incarnation, he sent him to be a sin offering. That refers to Christ's death. And so the incarnation and the death of Christ were the requirements of the law. And it might be fully met in Christians. John Stott says this, God condemned sin in Christ so that holiness might appear in us. God condemned sin in Christ so that holiness might appear in us. We have the same idea in Ephesians. We're told that God has literally ordained or appointed us to what? Good works. Ephesians is a wonderful book of the Bible. If you're struggling with your identity in Christ, I encourage you to read the book of Ephesians. Take chapter 1 and read it every day for a week. And then chapter 2 the second week. And chapter 3 the third week. And by the time you get to chapter 4, hopefully you'll understand who you are in Christ. And after you understand who you are in Christ, then you can get to chapter 4 and figure out what God wants you to do. See, our, our salvation is by the work of Christ. It's apart from any human merit. But the end is good works. The end of our salvation should equal good works. He saved us by grace so that we might be gracious in how we treat other people. So that we can live a life that's honoring to him. So holiness is justification's goal. Secondly, holiness consists in fulfilling the law's just demands. See, there's two errors that we need to avoid here. One is the error of the Pharisees. The Pharisees thought of themselves as being perfect fulfillers of the law. 
they thought somehow they were just, you know, the people that kept the law perfectly. The law said tithe, so they tithed. They tithed not only their money, but their goods, even down to their spices on the shelves. The law said keep the Sabbath, so they kept the Sabbath. They wouldn't even lift a finger to do even the smallest thing that might be misunderstood as work on the Sabbath. Yet the Pharisees were not righteous. They were self-righteous. Many people were filled with pride, even to the point of hating those who weren't like themselves. And their worst hatred was for Jesus. Because, as he did so many times, his righteousness exposed their sin. Do you know that some of the most critical things Jesus ever said were about these religious people of his day? About their hypocrisy? The other error is just the opposite. It's a characteristic error of our time, I would say. The error of, Danny spoke to this, hedonistic, antinomian behavior. This view kind of says, well, what does it really matter? You know, it's not the law, but what I feel in my heart. So even if the law of God says that something is wrong, as long as I feel it's okay, it must be okay. Or at least it's okay for me if I'm not hurting anybody else. And besides, Jesus died for my sins, so we don't really need to get into the law stuff. It's the response made by a lot of moral demands put on people today, many of whom want to be Christians or considered Christians who are really not. So the answer is in the word when it tells us to live according to. And and the word of God says that basically we need to walk in a certain way, a certain way that portrays a Christian. Christian life is a path along which we walk, following Jesus Christ. That's why we're called Christians. We're, we're little Christ. We're followers of Christ. The path has a direction. The path has boundaries. When you breach those, you're in trouble. Something's wrong. The direction we're heading in is the character of God which is expressed in God's law, but we fully see in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We must not wave from that path. If we do, we are not following after Christ. Can Christians sin? Sure, we all sin. But you know what? There's a big difference between stumbling on the path and literally jumping off the path and going your own way. 
Those who are on the path may fall. They may stumble. But they're still following after Jesus Christ. Thirdly, holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit. This isn't something you manufacture. It's not something you wake up in the morning saying, okay, I'm going to be holy today. Can't do it. In Romans chapter 7, when we looked at that, Paul made a couple points. First of all, before his conversion, he said basically he could not keep the law. Couldn't do it. It's impossible. He wanted to keep it, and at times he, he thought he had kept it, but he actually couldn't do it. He declared himself an impotent sinner. Secondly, even after his conversion, he found that he was unable to keep the law of God by himself, that he was torn. He describes his struggle toward the end of the chapter there when he says, I wanted to do what he wanted to do he couldn't do. And what he didn't want to do, that's what he ended up doing. Well, that leads to two conclusions. First of all, if we cannot live a holy life apart from the Holy Spirit then we must keep close to God in Bible study and fellowship where God can speak to our hearts, where God can speak to our hearts through prayer. We must seek. We must set our desire on seeking God's blessing. And secondly, you have to work at this relationship. This doesn't just happen automatically. All the way back in Romans 6, Paul said, We need to count yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let any sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer your part, your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Now, he doesn't mention the Holy Spirit specifically there in chapter 6, but we learn in chapter 8, it's not going to happen without the Spirit's input in your life because he's indwelling you. And the fourth thing here about holiness is that it's mandatory. This isn't something that's optional for the Christian. Somebody once asked me, do you think discipleship is necessary? Do you think being a Christian requires you to be a disciple? What they're asking is, can I be a Christian and do whatever I want? (laughs) A disciple is somebody who follows somebody, follows the teachings of somebody, who follows the lifestyle of somebody. Is discipleship necessary in order to have a full and, and happy Christian life? Is discipleship necessary for the one to be A true Christian, can a person be saved without discipleship? I would say, yes, it is necessary. 
not only is it necessary, it's mandatory to follow Christ to be a Christian. And yet we have, quote, Christian teachers today that say, well, whether you follow Christ or Buddha or whoever, it's okay. It's all going to wash out in the end. We just need to be respectful of everybody's views. And when we say that holiness is mandatory, we don't mean that it is merely good to be holy. And we certainly do not mean that we can be perfect or even reach a point where we're no longer in danger of sinning. We mean basically you have to be on the right path. You have to be walking according to the Spirit of God. If you're a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, that's exactly what Christians do. In some recent polling... Pupils, people in churches. One poll said this, 57% of evangelical church attenders believe many religions can lead to eternal life. These are evangelical churches. Other surveys show this, 9% of teens, that's 9, and 32% of adults who claim to be born-again Christians believe in moral absolutes. That's kind of scary. That means over 90% of teens who claim to be born again don't believe in moral absolutes. And two-thirds of those who are born again don't believe in moral absolutes. We see this in our society. And I think it's a basic misunderstanding of the gospel. We've wrongly assumed in the church that somehow when someone makes a decision to accept Jesus as Savior, or maybe they pray a prayer and they invite Jesus into their heart, or they raise a hand during an evangelistic meeting, somehow we wrongly think that someone can accept Jesus as his Savior but not yield to him as his Lord. Or we mistakenly assume that just because somebody professes Jesus as Lord, they must be. (laughs) As a youth pastor, I used to deal with young people all the time. A lot of times it was females, girls. And they'd say, I got this new boyfriend. I'd say, was he a Christian? Because they were a Christian. Well... Yeah, yeah. That didn't sound too sure. (laughs) What do you mean, yeah, yeah, yeah? Well, he he says he is. He must be really cute. (laughs) That was my answer. What do you mean by that? Because you don't sound too sure he's even a Christian. You're willing to throw all that away and get involved with somebody who's not a believer when the Bible clearly says don't do it. See, just because someone says they're a believer doesn't make them a believer. Jesus made it very clear. Only, you know, look at Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. 
this is, is so clear. I mean, it's, uh, it's hard to miss it here. Matthew chapter 7. Look at verses 21. Jesus basically is saying here, only those who obey him can expect to be welcomed into heaven. Verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says, this is Jesus speaking, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does what? The will of my Father who is in heaven. It's conditional. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? That sounds like a pretty good thing. Didn't we cast out demons in your name? That sounds like even a better thing. And didn't we do many mighty works in your name? Now notice, they're doing it in Jesus' name. Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Notice he doesn't say, aren't you the guy? Oh, that's right. I kind of remember. No, he says, I never, ever knew you. No relationship at all. And yet, they're out doing stuff in Jesus' name. Surprisingly, our churches are filled with people like this. It's sad. I think it's a nightmare of every pastor, of every person who teaches the Bible, to realize that there are people in your church that think they're saved when they're not. And they think all the ministry they're involved in, all the good things they're doing, are somehow going to get them through the gates of heaven. And one day they're going to stand before Jesus and they're going to say, wait a minute, didn't, I was teaching Sunday school, I was this, I was an elder, I was a pastor, I was the treasurer, I was helped out in the kitchen, I, I sacrificed, I gave to the church, I did it. Sorry, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And he continues on this path here in Matthew. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the waters came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house. Look at what it says. But it did not, what? Fall. Why didn't it fall? Because... It had been founded on the rock. It had a foundation upon which to stand. There's a lot of people that are in the church today that think they're believers and they're trying to build this Christian life and they've learned the language and they've learned even how to do ministry. And yet there's no foundation for their salvation. They're not saved. They're deceived. They're deceived. 
He says in verse 26 there, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. My granddaughter and I were building a sand castle one day at the beach in Hawaii. And I thought of this. Because as we got it bigger and bigger, we were getting kind of excited. Well, then all of a sudden the tide started coming in and the waves started coming in. And even though the waves weren't even hitting the sandcastle, it was eroding the foundation of the sandcastle, and pretty soon it was just a pile of mud. It says in verse 27, When the rain fell and the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. Look at what it says. And great was the fall of it. Why? Because they thought it was okay. They thought, you know what? Hey, I'm doing all this stuff for Christ. I'm sacrifices. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm sure that in the end, it's all going to work out. Not a good place to be in, beloved. The Bible says that we should make sure of our calling. That we should go to God and, and, and really, really make sure that he's doing a work in our heart, in our lives. That we should see some form of sanctification in our lives going on on a continuous basis. Hey, we all have dry moments. We all, you know, get in the valley and it's kind of dry spiritually and whatever. Depression, whatever it might be. But you know what? We're still on the path and we still know that God is at work. And we still know that he is doing a work in our hearts. And we know that we can't live in sin in a complacent manner. We know we have to confess it. We know we have to move on. There's a lot of people in our churches today trying to live a holy life, and they have no means to do it because they don't have the very source of holiness, the Holy Spirit within them, because they're trusting in some past aisle they walked or hand they raised calling themselves a believer and they've struggled with sin ever since that point but they've learned Christianity well enough to kind of fit in with everybody they know when you're at church you probably shouldn't cuss you probably shouldn't smoke you probably shouldn't do other things that are inappropriate but you know once you leave well then you can do whatever you want make your election sure Jesus said very clearly, if you love me, you'll do the things that I ask you to do. And so he concludes here in verse 4 of Romans 8. He says the law would be fulfilled in us. And you know what? What characterizes us, what characterizes a Christian? That we do not walk according to the flesh but we walk according to the Spirit. That means there's an element of holiness in our lives. That means that somehow when the world looks at us, we're a little different, maybe a little peculiar. When we state something that's just basic truth in a world that's lost and dying and going to hell, it's kind of like someone... Have you ever been in a very, very, very dark place for a period of time and someone comes in and turns a light on or shines a light in your face, and you go, whoa, can't handle it. That's what happens today in our world when we speak what we know to be true. 
It's common sense. And yet it's so shocking to a world that's caught in darkness that they think it's like you just cussed them out. I mean, when our very own mayor (laughs) couldn't even repeat the words of a prayer that I prayed because it was so offensive. Can't even repeat the words. I mean, if you didn't hear the prayer or read the prayer, you'd think that I was in there dropping some kind of bombs, word bombs, you know, on everybody, cussing everybody out. I mean, we live in such a day and age, if I would have done that, it probably would have been okay. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Everything is backwards. But that's okay, because you know what? God is still on our side. And we're not to walk according to the flesh. We're walk according to the Spirit. I want to ask you today, we're not going to get the rest of this. We'll get to pick this up next week. What is your mind set on? What are you focused on? Where do you spend the majority of your time? I pray that somehow a portion of your time every day is carved out in this book. That you're spending time with God. That you're spending time with God's people. Trust me, beloved, it is not going to get easier. It will not get easier. And I think really what's going on in our society is God stepping in and he's going to cleanse his church. And when it gets tough to meet here on Sundays because of whatever might happen happens, you know what? We're going to see people not show up. God is going to separate the true church from that which is false. It's coming, mark my words. And so it's very important that you understand what your state is, where you are. Next week, we're going to look at these two people that the Bible talks about. And there's only two people. There's only two classes of people according to God. There's those who know Christ and those who do not. Those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the Spirit. And I would ask you this morning, what camp are you in? Because if you're living your life according to the flesh, outside of Christ, it tells us right in our text, that is going to equal death. Eternity. All eternity in hell forever. Eternal torment. This isn't a place you go and party with your friends and, you know, oh, it's going to be over in a couple hours anyway. My body's just going to burn up. No. The Bible speaks of it as eternity. We all have eternal life. It's just a matter of where you're going to spend it. With God in heaven, through the forgiveness of Christ, or in hell, in a godless eternity. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to Help us to walk circumspectly in this world in which we live. Lord, that people would not misunderstand the truth for us trying to give people offense on purpose. But Lord, that that we would continue to uh, preach the word of God, the truth of the word of God, that it would have an impact on people's hearts and lives. Father, that we wouldn't do it in our own power, we would do it in the power of the spirit of God. And Lord, as we live our lives on a daily basis, I pray that somehow that we would understand that we need to become more like you each and every day. 
This isn't something that happens at salvation and then it ceases and we get to do whatever we want because our sins have been paid for. The Bible very clearly tells us that if we love your son, that we will continue to do, we'll continue to walk in the works of Christ. And so, Father, we pray this morning for each heart that's represented here. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who is yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would cause them to to cry out to you, to show them their sinfulness, to show them their need of a Savior. And you're the only Savior they have. You're, You're the only Savior that works. They can try all kinds of different religions. They can try all kinds of different things. Jesus said very clearly, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He who comes to the Father through me, there's no other way. You have to. And you made it pretty easy. You, you, you took the burden of sin for us. You paid the price of sin for us. You're not asking us to pay it again. You've already paid it. We need to simply put our hand out, trust you, put our faith, our trust in you, become a follower of Christ, and that burden will be lifted. And we can walk in newness of life, being transformed into a new creature in Christ. That old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. God knows you best. He's not going to lead you down a path and then do a bait and switch at the end. That's not the God we serve. This is real. And for us Christians, I pray that you would cause us to be mindful of the fact that we live in a world that's hostile against the truth, against the things of God. And so we shouldn't be surprised when when people oppose us But I pray that that would not silence us, that we would not grow faint and weary and well-doing. But Lord, that we would even be bolder, being bolded by what's going on in our world. And Father, I ask that you would also just bless our fellowship afterwards over in the fellowship hall, bless the food of our bodies, bless our fellowship. And Lord, we continue to pray for our sister Shelley, as she recovers, just pray that you would bless her day as well. And Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.